It is the month of August, 2021. Uh-huh, yep. Fun times. How time flies. <laughs> it's kind of wild that we are on episode 27, actually. Yeah, fair. Because <laughs> I think this has been running for about one and a half what years. Oh God, yeah. It started when you were in quarantine. Yep. And I'm going to be heading off next week. I mean, not into quarantine technically because the Americans, for some reason, don't require quarantine. But yes, I will be flying out on Wednesday. Mm-hmm. And how long is your flight, actually? 16 hours, 15 hours, 55 minutes. It's not too bad. I mean, Austin's not too bad, you know, yeah. If I went the other way, it's going to be like 24 to 26 hours in transit, you know, in the air and on the ground as well, right? Including, I think, eight hours of layover in Doha, plus, 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 here and there, yeah. I thought you meant like 24 hours connecting, which was which would be wild. Oh, no, that's my current situation. I will be 24 hours connecting in Los Angeles. Right. Because, <laughs> should I tell this long story? I will tell the long story. Hang on a second. So, just to be clear, they are not connecting flights in the sense of aviation. They are more like separate flights. Yeah, I booked my next flight 24 hours after my first flight lands. Okay. Yes, this is an intentional thing. So, it's because I'm going to be carrying dead bodies with me. Specifically dead birds. Already prepared, already skinned, so no rottiness. I don't need to keep them at like minus 20 degrees Celsius the whole time. I don't have to have them sloshing around in like a vat of liquid nitrogen or something, which has been done before, by the way. When we go out in the field and we do field work and we collect samples, especially tissue samples, right? You often just put the meat in the tube and then the tube goes into a dewer of liquid nitrogen and then you ship the whole dewer back, <laughs> which can be challenging. These dewers are heavy, right? These dewer flasks are double walled with a vacuum in between to prevent the liquid nitrogen from heating up and evaporating away. Ah, uh, okay, yeah. So I think one of the expeditions that my colleagues went on, I think to Panama, they had to carry these heavy ass dewers filled with liquid nitrogen into the field with donkeys. Okay, wait, how big are we talking? A dewer is about the size of big luggage. Ah, uh, okay, cool. How do you spell this? I've never heard this word. D-E-W-A-R. Dewar or Dewar. It's, I think, named after wow. a certain Mr. Dewar. James. Dewar, right? That's not how I would have expected his name to be pronounced. But yeah, okay. Yes. My colleagues call it Dewar. I don't know. I would have said Dewar, but yeah. I'll assume that you know better than me how to pronounce this word since I literally just heard it. <laughs> Dewar, okay. It is a fascinating piece of technology that's sort of invented to keep really cold things really cold, right? And of course, to prevent it from exploding as well. Sir James Dewar, I'm assuming. I cannot connect the pronunciation Dewar with D-E-W-A-R, like when I see yes. the word. I just want to say Dewar. Dewar. <laughs> yeah. So, he's the inventor of the vacuum flask. This is interesting because as strange as it sounds, I always thought of the vacuum flask as an industrial invention. I mean, it is an industrial era invention, but... I always thought of it as something that would have been invented for commercial users rather than scientific users, but okay. Yep. So it's used for carrying liquid nitrogen. There are a lot of issues that you have to be aware of, right? You know, you have to make sure that pressure inside is not too much. You don't want your dewer to explode. So these dewers are usually made of metal. So they're extremely heavy. And so carrying them in and out of the field is sometimes a challenge, especially if they're going to remote areas, which, you know, you don't have, say, vehicular access to. There are two options, you know, if you're going to be taking, say, tissue samples out from, say, a remote jungle, the best way is to just take the meat, put it in the tube, straight into liquid nitrogen, because this preserves everything, including RNA. I think we should talked about last episode, right? RNA, which degrades super fast. 
if you don't dump it in liquid nitrogen, the alternative is to dump it in 100% ethanol. So how ethanol works, as with most applications of ethanol, even including our, our drinking habits, is that it dehydrates. Aha, uh-huh. <laughs> okay. <laughs> right? Ethanol is, I think, if I'm not wrong, heavily hygroscopic. So it pulls water from whatever is surrounded because it's a polar solvent, right? So when you dump a piece of meat in ethanol, pure ethanol or 70% ethanol, it basically pulls out as much water as it can from the surrounding tissue mm-hmm. and therefore helps to preserve it by, in a sense, chemically desiccating it. That's why it's a good fixative. It prevents the water from staying and then therefore the rotting is arrested. So the problem with ethanol is that it doesn't preserve RNA. RNA still degrades in the presence of ethanol. Or we wouldn't be talking about the cold chain. Exactly right. Otherwise, we'd be just shipping the vaccines in ethanol and then giving everyone a nice little woo <laughs> when they get their shot. <laughs> yeah. Okay, no COVID talk. No COVID talk. No. So that is the interesting problem that I'm faced with right now, which is I have to transport my samples. So I have all my samples are in ethanol. The tissue samples are in ethanol. I've got two freezer boxes worth of tissue samples in ethanol. And then I've got one ginormous plastic box full of dead skins, about 15 skins in total. And so transporting that will be a challenge because I don't want to check it in. Baggage handlers are known for not exactly being gentle with the stuff they handle. And so now I've managed to find a duffel bag that's big enough yet small enough to fit on the overhead cabin locker. So that's hopefully not going to present any problems, but you know, don't speak too soon. (laughs) Which airline are you flying, by the way? Singapore Airlines. Okay. So my hope is that the airline is going to be relatively empty, which I think there's a reasonable chance of. I don't know. I spoke to a pilot friend and they said that long haul flights tend to be quite full. Interesting. Okay. It's weird. But anyway, the problem now is of course the logistics of having to bring the whole thing over along with the rest of my luggage. And, you know, I am carrying a ton of glass with me because I'm carrying not only my big ass camera, which I'm starting to get very tired of after how many years has it been? 2014 to, oh God, seven years. Been carrying this thing around for seven years. I'm wondering if I should switch to a mirrorless system instead. Yeah. Now we're in the realm of stuff that I can talk about. Oh, but the other thing is I've got a spotting scope, a telescope with me as well, which is another piece of equipment. So I'm carrying tons of glass. On my person, plus dead animals, and then, you know, my check-in luggage as well. Yeah, to be honest, I am on the verge of basically giving up all my cameras. Although I realize that's not an option for you because you are using it for very specialized purposes. Well, I mean, to be fair, I have actually stopped carrying my camera around with me in the field. So I've discovered, I mean, this is the thing, right? When you're out looking at anything and you need your camera as a tool for documenting the things around you. You have various options. Sometimes you just want a photograph of something so that you can go back later and identify what the heck it was. Right. Or you need a photograph of something just purely for documentation purposes. Under those circumstances, you don't need a net geo quality photo. You don't need something that's razor sharp. You don't need something that's, you know, perfectly composed and everything. You just need something that works. And I found, at least for general nature watching purposes, including birds, a combination of my iPhone and my binoculars works fine. I figured out a way of sort of perching my phone lens on my binoculars where I can get perfectly decent photographs. I mean, it's not sharp. It's not high resolution, but it gets the job done. And so because of this, I've mm -hmm. stopped taking my big camera out with me, except on special occasions. This is the thing, right? Which is that when I was in film school and I was talking to my professor about 
I'm thinking about picking up a camera, what are the considerations? And I think at the time I had an iPhone 4 and he said, depends on what the purpose is, right? Like, is this for personal use? Is this for assignments? Is this for, you know, like you want to go out and shoot stuff for film, right? Because this class, even though it was film school, this class in particular didn't shoot moving pictures, right? This was only still pictures. So I said, well, it would be primarily for class because when you're in a production class in film school, you get an allotment of equipment, right? And in that particular case, it was three students to one camera. So it would mean like, you know, you have to coordinate with your teammates, like, okay, who gets the camera when? You have to hand it off and blah, blah, blah. And it was just like, well, it's the start of film school. You're going to be around cameras a lot. Just pick up one for yourself, right? And it will be good for practice as well because then you're not constrained by when you are going to get the camera, not just for homework, but also for your own personal use. Not that you use like school equipment for personal use, but you know what I mean, right? I want to get some practice in. So I was talking to him about that and he said, well, the thing is, the best camera is the one that you have on you. And he said, for personal use, basically my camera is my phone. This was 10 years ago, 11 actually. <laughs> Obviously, that is slightly different from the context that I was talking to him about. But I think in the years since then, especially since I left film school, that's become more and more true, especially when it comes to digital cameras, right? If we were still working in the realm of film, film is a very mature technology, right? Optics is a very mature field of science or subfield of science. And so if you're talking about film cameras, film cameras that were good 10 years ago are still good today. But digital cameras that were good 10 years ago are mediocre today. <laughs> mediocre? No, garbage. <laughs> Actually, no, to be fair, I'm carrying a 7D Mark I, so... Right. I think they're at the point where it's mediocre because the glass can stay updated. The interfaces haven't changed, but the sensors? Mm, yeah. The other thing is the format by and large hasn't changed. So you're still in good shape there, but the sensors are not that great now. Here's the other factor, which is Canon, Nikon, Sony, they don't do a lot of computational videography or computational photography, which Apple and Google do a lot of. Part of why Apple and Google do that is because they are much more hardware constrained. Because what they put into their cameras has to fit into the form factor of a phone. Yes. And so you have a lot of considerations like you literally don't have that much space. Your sensor is tiny <laughs> compared to like a full frame. How would you even fit a full frame on? CCD onto it, yeah. Yeah, it does not work, right? And so they make up for it with a lot of computation because that's what the phones have that most full frame or APS-C cameras don't because they have a full-blown computer in this thing. I mean, obviously they do in cameras as well, but that's not the priority. So why you can get such good images out of your phone is because there's a lot of computation going on that's making up for what the glass is missing. Yep, yep, the glass and the sensor. Yes, correct, the glass and the sensor. Primarily yeah. the sensor. And you know, I think which is why the, the more recent models of iPhones have multiple lenses. So you take in multiple data streams, which allows you to perform better computational improvements to the image. Right, you have one standard lens, one wide and one long. Long is pushing it, but <laughs> it's not exactly long. But In inverted commas, yeah, sure. <laughs> but it's also true that on your phone, 
you get much wider than you can get on a typical full frame or APS-C camera. I'll just use DSLR as a shorthand. Yeah, you know, on the standard 35mm, I think it's a bit wider on the phone, you're right. It's much wider. On your phone, it doesn't take much. You can just look at the feel of you on your phone versus a typical 50mm on a full frame camera. So part of why that is, again, I think this is a product design trade-off. In general use, it is much more common to want wide than to want long. Yep. I mean, most people are doing landscapes. Yeah, most people are doing landscapes. But also, if you think about what most people are using this for, I mean, to take pictures of parties, friends, food. You're indoors, you're in a constrained space. And invariably, if you think about, okay, so on a 35mm camera, or okay, on a full-frame camera, if I say 35mm camera, it sounds like film as opposed to digital. On a full-frame camera, right, the convention is that a normal lens is 50 millimeters. When you put a normal lens on a full-frame camera and you go to the corner of your room and you stand there, your field of view is actually really quite limited. And that's because the idea of normal is it mimics the field of view of human vision. But humans have necks. <laughs> Can you repeat that? That seems quite a new discovery. Yeah, I know. It's such a revelation. Sorry, I'm going to digress a little bit, but we always come to a point. The reason why this is making me very amused is because of metal straws. <laughs> metal straws were all the rage, I think, early last year. Uh-huh. When there was this discourse about plastic straws and you know why they're harming the environment. I'm like, do we even need straws in the first place unless you are disabled? Because we have lips. Right, yeah. Lips are a dynamically morphing organ on the body that can adapt to the shape of a container that you are putting to your mouth. Right. <laughs> you know, so do you need a straw for most regular drinking circumstances? No. So what's with all this rubbish about metal straws or plastic straws? Just ban the damn straw. Or only have it if you really need it. Going back to next. Yes. The human body is a remarkable, remarkable bit of engineering. On the issue of straws, I think I can imagine situations where there are useful utility. For example, you have a cup in a car. Bubble tea. Bubble tea is another one. <laughs> or you are walking and drinking. Let's face it, it probably is an outgrowth of packaged drinks in general. Yes, that's true. There is no need for it to be a standard issue item. If you are being served at a restaurant, you don't need a straw. Just drink from the cup. Okay, anyway, coming back to humans have necks, right? If you stand in the corner of a room, you get the impression that you can see the other corners of the room. Even though you probably can't. We also have rotatable eyeballs. Exactly. <laughs> it's coming from your peripheral vision. You're actually moving your head to look at the corners. If you take a 50mm lens on a 35mm sensor, you put it in the corner of the room, you are not going to get the two far corners. I mean, you can see the one across from you, but you're not going to get the two side corners for sure. And I think as a minimum constraint, right, most phone cameras, they are trying to widen that field so that you have a better chance of getting the corners in a medium-sized room. And I think that's just because, again, that's what people are most likely to want, right? Like, hey, look at this shop, look at this restaurant, look at this museum, look at this place that I'm at. And because of that, the product designers, right, this is a no-brainer of a trade-off. Because when are telephoto lenses used? They are used for when you're very far away from the thing that you're trying to shoot. 
And that's not the case in most casual photography. The other consideration is that the wider your lens and the wider you can get it without distortion, in a sense, the more of the field of view you are capturing. And therefore, if you want to crop it, you can. Yep, exactly. if that data is not landing on your sensor, you just have no way of getting it. Now, of course, the trade-off is that for any given sensor size, the wider the lens, the smaller the image on the sensor. The smaller the image of a physical thing. So the subject, right? The subject, will occupy yes. a smaller pixel space on your final image. Correct. And I mean, that's the actual definition of macro photography. I think, if I'm not mistaken, the definition of macro photography is that the image on the sensor is physically larger than the object you're capturing. Right. Which obviously tells you that, you know, on a full frame camera, you're capturing objects smaller than 35 millimeters by definition, right? Yes, correct. And the image is larger than object. I mean, I've been around a ton of macro photographers because, you know, insect photography and holy shit, the lengths they go to just to get a properly exposed image, because they're shooting an insect, the lens is literally like 5cm away from the insect. Yes. And then some of them focus stack because your depth of field becomes so shallow. It's a real challenge getting properly exposed, properly lit photo. And the lighting is another problem as well. The characteristic of a macro lens, I mean, there's a few things. One is, it is going to be very dark. You just don't have that much aperture to work with usually. Then the other thing is that even though it's going to be a slow lens, you don't get a lot of depth of field, which in most cases, it's not a good or bad thing. It's just a thing that you work with. It's just a fact, but it does make it much more technically challenging. Yes. If you're shooting something like, say, a caterpillar, which is long, right? And so extends way out of the plane of focus. If you want to get more of it in focus, you're going to have to focus stack. This is what we also do with specimen imagery in museums. So there are now these like setups you can buy, but previously it was, you know, most of it was manually rigged where you have an insect specimen, which is on a pin, usually mounted using KY jelly of all things, because KY jelly doesn't distort. It has a low refractive index, so it doesn't distort images. It's super cool. Right, so you put your insect on the mounting tray and then you have a camera that's pointed straight down at it and the camera itself is attached to a stepper motor. And then the software on the computer will be able to control, okay, the camera is going to take a photo now, then it's going to step down one and then take another photo, step down and then time take another photo and then it'll do the autofocus stacking for you. Yeah, but coming back to the iPhone, right? Most people are not doing that kind of photography. No, they're not. Right? It's like food photos, food photos, food photos, bubble tea. My friend managed to find a clip-on macro lens for his iPhone, which I need to get because insect photography is infuriating with sometimes. I mean, the smaller insects. It's bad enough when you have professional equipment. So I think the thing is, as these phones get better, I mean, you remember that once upon a time in the ancient era... Five years ago. Yeah, people bought consumer cameras as like walk-around cameras, right? Like you went out with a phone, a Walkman. Well, actually, that's a good point, right? Point-and-shoot cameras have sort of really fallen a bit off. There is no market anymore. People do still buy point-and-shoot cameras, but it's become less ubiquitous than it was in the past. Correct. Right. So the, all the cool pixels, even the PowerShot series has gone down in, uh, a bit as well in terms of the popularity. It is very interesting. Because that functionality is now so easily duplicated by a phone. And in a lot of senses, okay, it's partly because of what I just said, right? Which is that Canon and Nikon, they are very good at 
glass and they are a lot less competitive when it comes to the computational side. And that is why it's, I won't say trivial, it's not trivial, but that's why they're kind of losing out to, you know, the likes of Apple and Google, which are very strong computationally and they can easily make up for that lost ground. Which comes back to the thing about you're capturing less information on the sensor itself, but with computational photography and videography, you can interpolate what's supposed to be there. In film school, my goal when purchasing cameras was not primarily for personal use. I mean, in a sense, they're mm-hmm. for personal use, but you also want to pick up stuff that is professional quality. I mean, obviously on the lower end, I mean, I'm not buying like red cameras or anything, but no, yes. stuff that at the minimum would be sufficient. It's our for prosumer sort of type somewhere, of cameras. Somewhere in the prosumer land, yeah. So you're, mm. you're talking about cameras that were put out at the time, full HD, not mm-hmm. 4K, because at that time, that's what was used for most Reaction. TV broadcasts. You are looking at stuff that at a minimum allows you complete manual control and can capture things at a high enough bit rate. Mm. So that's kind of the basic requirements. And also, I mean, it's a professional tool, right? You want it to be ergonomic. So in the sense, like you have cameras that give you full manual control, but hidden behind menus and menus and menus, which yeah, not great. And especially for documentary filmmaking, because you have to be fast. That's right. Yeah. Which is why when I was at film school for narrative fiction, by that time, it was very common to use DSLRs. Yes, like a 5D. I think 5Ds were really popular with filmmakers at one point. Right? Yes, 5Ds and 7Ds. If I remember correctly, I think like part of the Avengers was shot on a 5D. I wouldn't be surprised. Because, I mean, if you're talking about the camera quality, like mm-hmm. the quality of the image is absolutely, it's there. But where they were lacking was, these were still cameras made for photographers. That's right. And yeah, they didn't have a lot of provisions that you'd expect to see on a professional film camera. I think now Canon has differentiated their line somewhat. So now they have the C line, which is what most filmmakers go for anyway. Correct. I think the other reason why the 5D was very popular at one point is because drones were starting to come into use in filmmaking and you could quite easily mount a 5D on a drone. Right. Small enough. Yeah, yeah, that's also true. But I think even at that time, like you are talking, you know, 2010 to 2014, for documentary filmmakers, that was still a bit of a leap because if you're in documentary filmmaking, you need to have full manual control of focus and exposure at the same time. And also length. Because the trade-off, I mean, if you're in in narrative fiction, you never use zoom lenses. You always know exactly what the length of your lens is. You don't know that in documentary, which is why you see the classic documentary camera or ENG camera, electronic news gathering camera, has three rings. One for aperture, one for length, zoom, basically, and one for focus. Whereas on your typical photography camera, you only really see the one for focus because exposure is handled by buttons. Yes. Yeah. Or by the computer's own processor if you're on P mode. Yeah, exactly. Or any of the auto modes, yeah. Or nobody is on P mode in film school. Yeah, and the length is determined by what lens you put on it. That's most of what I picked up in film school. So I have like a Canon XF100 and a Canon XF300, which are your typical ENG cameras. The interesting thing is when I bought the XF100, I actually paid above MSRP for it because I think the year was like 2011 and the 
earthquake just happened, the Tohoku earthquake. Oh, yes. Oh, gosh. And so the XF100 was out of stock everywhere, back ordered everywhere. I saw someone selling it on eBay for above MSRP and I bought it. Correct. Because you don't know when they're coming back. Yep. When I made the purchase, I did a lot of research about, you know, there is an XF100 and XF300. The 300 is your typical ENG camera, right? What I talked about, the three rings, big enough for a shoulder mount kind of thing. And the XF100 has a smaller sensor, the same glass in a lot of respects, the same specs. It's more compact. I'm looking at image. Yeah, it's a much smaller form factor. So it looks like a large prosumer camera. And what was kind of telling was I looked up what professionals thought of it, right? Like people who shoot videos, wedding photographers, that kind of thing on a daily basis or a weekly basis. And the interesting thing I pointed out was the quality is absolutely, is there. The same, right? Surely? It matches up with the XF300. Ergonomically, it's a bit more restricted because it's tiny in comparison. You only have one focus ring. We only have one ring which you can configure however you want. The other consideration is it doesn't have as many options for ND filtering, but that's a different story. But again, if you put thought into it, that's something you can work around. What they said was this is absolutely a professional level camera, but sometimes clients flinch when they see it because they think that it's a prosumer camera. Huh. 2011, right? They expect you as a professional to go in with a humongous shoulder-mounted camera. Right. Oh, God. Okay. Yeah. And when they see it, they are kind of like, did I hire the right person? Amateurs. <laughs> exactly. So anyway, for me, that wasn't an issue. I'm a film school student, right? I got the XF100. And then a couple of years later, I got the XF300. It's nice to use them in a pair because then you know the image. It's coming out of the same processing, basically. They will match up perfectly. Whereas if you use that and then you use a 5D then you have the problem of making them look like they came from the same camera. Even though they're both Canon cameras, they look completely different. Even if they have the same image profile, you have the problem that on these ENG cameras, the depth of field is routinely deeper. Mm, and right. so you have this sense of like, hmm, why does this look like TV and that looks like film? <laughs> and that's not because of the medium. It's because of conventionally, ENG cameras have a deeper depth of field and that's again, because when you don't know what you're shooting, you want more stuff to be in focus just to make your life easier. Whereas again, in narrative film, you want it to be as shallow as possible so that you can direct attention where you want it. Yes. If you do that thing where your primary camera is an ENG camera and your secondary camera is a DSLR, you end up with a weird situation where your DSLR shots, your B-roll, so to speak looks a lot more cinematic yes <laughs> than your main thread this is exactly what a DOP gets paid to think about right exactly so out of film school I started on a couple of projects but I never finished them I think the reasons why it's a whole different consideration as a result I mean now I have a number of cameras sitting around I have an XF100 XF300 I have a I want to say 600 600D? Because I bought it in the US, so it's actually the Rebel series, but I think the equivalent is a 600D and that's... It's an older super, model, right? Yeah, it's super outdated at this point. And we're at a point where I basically never use them because they're not the cameras that are with me. When I need to take a photo, I'm using my phone. And frankly, for most general purpose usage, there is no increase in quality. Right. 
it's for Instagram. It's not even for Instagram. I mean, if you think about pictures I'm going to be taking, I don't need the things that are specific to those cameras. What those cameras give me, right? I mean, if you're talking about just pure quality, the iPhone is probably better at this point because it has 10 years worth of advancement in sensors, computation, and so on. What the DSLRs will always give that is very unlikely that phone cameras will be able to achieve because physics is you are going to have a lot of trouble getting that shallow depth of field. You're going to have a lot of trouble getting bokeh, basically, the blurring in the background. And if you're in a situation where you're shooting video and you need to be able to do things like pull focus, you're still very constrained in all of those respects on a phone camera. But again, with good planning, a skilled filmmaker or videographer or photographer can still achieve all of those things. You just need to have other aspects within your control. So I think famously, Steven Soderbergh shot a film on an iPhone. High Flying Bird shot entirely on an iPhone 8. (laughs) And oh, here's a article from IndieWire. And the headline is, High Flying Bird, what Soderbergh begged Apple to change about the iPhone? Which I think, again, tells you that... It's fine, but it's very constraining. You have to work with the equipment instead of the equipment conforming itself to you. Correct. So, yeah, it's possible. But again, if you're not in a position where you have to be able to shoot any kind of picture that you want, the iPhone is perfect. Nobody's judging your Instagram photos on like the quality of the bokeh or on the depth of field. If you do get bokeh or good depth of field, that's a bonus. Yeah, that's a bonus, basically. The thing is that with bird photography, there's no such thing as... Oh no, actually there are. But you know, by and large, if you're doing bird photography, your camera setup is clunky. Yes, correct. Unless you're using a point-and-shoot. In fact, actually these days, the point-and-shoots are, I would argue, sometimes performing better than the DSLRs or the Micro Four Thirds cameras because the sensors are getting better and they're able to cram so much focal length into such a tiny form factor. Interesting, okay. I think the Canon P500s or whatever, I think the P series, uh, Nikon, sorry, Nikon P series, has a focal length of 1600 maximum, optical focal length. What? And it's a point and shoot, if I'm not wrong, is it? Hang on, let me double check. Nikon. We are both Googling the same thing at the same time. I know, P, let's say P1000. Discontinued, Coolpix P500. It's a point and shoot, but it has a classic DSLR form factor. Yeah, so okay, because of the crop, right, it's got a maximum focal length of 3,000 millimeters because of the crop. Yeah, I mean, that's an effective... Effective focal length. Kind of, yeah. You still get the optical qualities of something shorter, but yeah. So the one I think my friends carry is the P900, the Coolpix, yeah, which is, you know, looks like a fairly standard point and shoot. 36 times zoom. Whoa. Astounding, right? So, you know, these point and shoot cameras have become incredibly powerful. Obviously, they have their limitations. Because it's a point and shoot, it's not as fast as a DSLR. So you want to get things like flight shots or you want to get things like, you know, what they call the action shot in nature photography. That's going to be challenging sometimes because you need to dynamically adjust your settings for those. Here's the thing, right, which is we talk about fast in the sense of two senses, right, when it comes to photography. One is how fast is the lens? Yes. How fast is the lens meaning, yeah, shutter speed is one thing which I guess is a third thing, right? (laughs) Actually, Mm. 
Yeah. Whether your shutter speed is fast or slow. How fast is the lens meaning how much light does it let in and therefore how long do you need to expose it for? And then the third thing is how quickly can you get up and running again between shots? Correct. Yes. And I mean, that's a feature of like, for example, like my 1000D has, you know, if you hold down the trigger, it fires off shots in like every like three seconds or something, which is slow, right? Whereas as you go up the line, you end up with much faster. Like you get really, really quick shots. So in all of those senses, we are talking again purely about the qualities of the camera, right? The optical or technological capabilities of the camera. But in a lot of senses, when we talk about speed to take a shot, from the moment that you think that will make a good photo to when you have the photo, in daily life, you're much more thinking about, oh, I should take a photo of that. You reach for the nearest suitable camera and then you take a photo of it. In all of those senses, a phone camera is faster. Oh, very much so. Except for the one case where you go out with a DSLR or mirrorless with the intention of shooting something. Whether it's sports or nature, which are the two most common, I guess, scenarios where you need these kinds of things. Yeah. Sports and nature are your classic use cases for telephoto lenses. Or street photography. Street less so. Actually, I would say street is... I mean, okay, if you are a professional, right, and you want to take specific shots. Okay, I shouldn't say specific. Like if you have a specific style in mind yeah. that lends itself to using a DSLR or mirrorless camera, then yeah, sure. But if you think about the qualities, what things street photographers will tend to look for in their equipment, you are looking at typically slightly wider than normal lenses. And because they're not necessarily that close to their subject, the depth of field can often be quite deep because you are wide, right? You're white and so you have lots of DOF and street photography. You also want a camera that's not obtrusive. Yeah, it's not obtrusive because nobody wants a lens in their face. That's also why like Leica is so favoured by street photographers because the DSLR is like big, it's clunky. In the case of street photography, that's where you might see more zoom lenses actually. Again, for versatility. And if you have a zoom lens, you have this thing sticking out of the front. And then when you press the shutter, it goes... <laughs> Whereas if you look at a Leica, it is not a DSLR. It doesn't go when you press the shutter. And mm -hmm. I think it just looks more inoffensive in a lot of ways. That's why people like it for street photography. I mean, this makes me wonder, you know, I mean, obviously, if Diane Arbus and Gary Winogrand lived to see the iPhone era, I wonder how they would have reacted. I'm sure they would have, you know, just latched onto it immediately. Nobody bats an eye when you whip out your iPhone to take a photo. Can you imagine if Instagram was like in point and shoot? Right. You're like, okay, now I have to go out with my cool pics or, you know, whatever the Canon equivalent is. I can't remember. And then you're like, hey, nice, a vending machine. And then you just stop there and you take a photo of a vending machine. You're like, ooh, graffiti. Okay, graffiti, to be fair, people take photos of all the time. I guess because it is art in a sense, but not in a sense. It is art, right? So yeah, it makes sense. But if you talk about like the most mundane things, like I am going to take a photo of a traffic light. People will be like, what the hell are you doing? <laughs> right, but nobody flinches at a camera phone. That's true. Actually, I wonder what Robert Frank thought of the iPhone. Because he died only quite recently, if I'm not wrong. One of the most iconic American street photographers. I would actually argue that for street photography, camera phones have a lot of the qualities 
to do very good street photography. I mean, what often defines street photography is not the technical qualities. Obviously, they are prerequisite. But technically, everything that you need is in a camera phone. It's much more defined by things like composition, timing, your choice of subject, all that kind of thing. Yeah. Sports, on the other hand. No. Or birds, nature, for that matter. Those are unique, very special. Because you split-second kind of things. You need rapid focusing. You need super long focal lengths. Because you don't want to be right up in the face of the footballer as he's trying to take the free kick. (laughs) They are just constrained by, okay, you're a sports journalist. Here is your seat. And the action is like... Halfway across the field. Yeah, exactly. If you've ever tried to take a photo of a sports event with your phone... Yeah, you're fucked. Yeah, you know what it's like. And you compare with the images (laughs) that sports photographers get. It's completely different. And they have a really hard time because, again, their shutter speed needs to be fast. Yes. The lens needs to be long. And those two things yes. often contradict a lot. Correct. Same with birds, right? The bird is there for a split second. That sometimes isn't the case, but for most situations, the bird is literally just perched there for two seconds. Or you have no idea how long it's going to sit there for. And then for sports photography, you have an additional constraint, which is often your depth of field needs to be deep. Yes. <laughs> right? And those three things, they are all working in opposition to each other. Yeah. The one thing that you can do to mitigate all of those is to have a larger sensor. Yes. And therefore your ISO will have to hope they can compensate for that. The other thing you can do is jack up the ISO. But in general, again today, you can get away with high ISOs because of computational photography. Yes. And that's what the iPhone does, right? To compensate for low light quality, it's jack up the ISO by a lot and then interpolate from there. Yeah, I mean, all cameras do that. And in general, just higher ISOs have gotten better on digital cameras over time. But again, if you are a professional and you're looking for, okay, how can I throw money at this problem? The one thing that makes a difference is sensor size. Yes, correct. Yeah. Right. And that's why the 7D is not a full frame sensor. You go full frame and then you pick your poison from there. What do I want? I'd like to see a sport photographer carry a Hasselblad onto the <laughs> medium format or I large mean, format camera. <laughs> yeah. Actually, now that you mention it, I wonder if anybody does that. Right? Do they make telephoto lenses for medium or large format cameras? <laughs> That's a good question. Okay, anyway. Can you imagine how enormous the ca- There is a Hasselblad for sports photography, the X1D. Okay, that has to go into the show notes. X1D, you said. No image stabilization, good Lola ISO. What? <laughs> Interesting, but this doesn't look like a. Okay, it is medium format. Yeah. Interesting. I actually literally never thought about It's way smaller than I would have expected. Yeah. But again, I think that speaks to how much photography has changed in the last 10 years. Anyway, I think we need to round up. We do. But it has been a fun conversation about cameras, which I don't think we've ever talked about despite, you know, us having this mutual interest in cameras. Yeah. I've been thinking about getting rid of my cameras for a long time. They take up a lot of space and I'm just not using them. Uh, Yeah, so the point I was actually going to get to, right, which is that I have a 7D with 150 to 600 millimeter Tamron lens, which is enormous. This lens has served me well for more than half a decade. It's been with me to all sorts of janky ass places, but I'm getting tired of its weight. So I'm thinking of switching to a micro four-thirds setup. The problem is, of course, the cost. Replacing everything will set me back at least $3,000 to $4,000. The other interesting factor is that micro four-thirds has a larger crop factor. 
Mm, you don't yes. need as long a lens to get the same frame. True, but there is a Sigma lens for micro four thirds that's about 600 millimeters or so, which is wow. <laughs> yeah. Anyway, time to finish. <laughs> time to round off. Yes. I mean, I hope you've got a better sense of cameras <laughs> in general. Ooh, I guess. <laughs> so this is episode 27 of Monkey Mind. You can find the show notes at monkeymind.xyz slash 027. And we will see you in a month when we will be in very opposite time zones. Very much so. 14 hours, 15 hours apart. <sighs> okay. Oh, daylight savings. Fun times. Bye-bye.